Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Gentle Parents Unite podcast with Sujai Johnston and Vivek Patel. I am Sujai, and I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Vivek Patel. Vivek, how are you doing today? I'm very well, Sujai. How are you, my friend? I am doing wonderful. I'm really excited about today's episode. We have a guest here with us today, our um, friend, colleague, and fellow admin for our group, Gentle Parents Unite. Um, Melody Schmitke, who is an educational assistant as well as a published author and, as I mentioned before, admin for our Facebook group, Gentle Parents Unite. She spends a lot of time supporting parents on this journey. Welcome, Melody. How are you doing today? I am wonderful. I'm so excited to be here and a little nervous. I am so excited that you're here. It's always really good to talk to you. Yeah, I feel like I haven't been around too much lately, so this is really nice to spend some time with you. Yeah, I know you've been really busy um, working at the school and helping support students, as well as you've been really busy publishing a book recently. Um, You want to tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, um, I published uh, Relationship First, which I hope is my first of um, many books. It's called Relationship First Parenting. I can't remember my subtitle off the top of my head, Uh, but it's about um, how we put our relationship first kids above, you know, anything else. I feel like that's really the message of Gentle Parents Unite and Gentle Parenting and what I've learned from you and Vivek over my few years in the group. Yeah, for sure. It's such an important priority and it's also a really challenging one. I know you spend a lot of time in our group um, helping parents with those challenges. Um, what do you think are like the most common challenges people have with putting relationship first? That may, that's a great question. Um, mainstream parenting really tells us that kids should be seen, not heard. They should be obedient as soon as we ask. And I know I really struggle with that still myself, even though I've been doing this for a lot of years. Right. But, you know, I still can get in that mindset where I'm like, why are you not just not listening to doing what I ask you the first time? which I, you know, is a major portion of the book. My intention was to write a book called uh, How to Make Your Kids Listen, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, as a way to hook people in who are expecting that, but it evolved over time with the help of um, feedback from members and from the admin team. Yeah, it's amazing how we, when we let go of needing that, like, instant complaint, creating more cooperation in the long run. Absolutely. But I think that we don't want to connect just for the sake of having our kids, you know, comply with our demands. We should want to connect for the sake of relationship because our kids aren't always going to be two, five, seven, ten. You know, they're going to be adults eventually. And we want to have that future relationship. You and I both have... Adult children, Vivek, and yeah. oh, Sujai does as well. And that uh, relationship lets us still guide them even when they're adults. Yeah, we were just uh, talking about a post in the group about backtalk and how people struggle with with that. You know, the expectation that kids just uh, don't have an opinion. <laughs> 
You know, um, the concept of back talk is such an interesting concept to me because it's really saying, um, you know, when we tell or ask a child to do something and expect them not to have an opinion or, um, you know, maybe a boundary around the thing. And when we say back talk, we're literally disregarding and disrespecting that child's right to having an opinion, to adding their two words, or worse, we could be overriding a boundary that they're trying to set with us. And when we're engaging with the idea of backtalk, we're not engaging with a relationship first mindset, certainly. And we're not engaging with a mindset that allows the child to be part of a problem-solving process, part of a decision-making process, and to set and have boundaries around this thing that they might not particularly want to engage in at this time. Yeah, there's really a power imbalance when it comes to backtalk and our kids being, you know, not as nice as prefer them to be and as we expect them to be and I'm really uh been cognizant lately of how gentle parenting um is about respecting our kids and treating them with respect the same way we want to be respected and you know shifting the power from I'm in charge and you are going to do what I say to we're equals yeah and it's an amazing thing to me how treating kids as equals um and giving them a lot of respect helps them learn to do the same because when we put ourselves above kids uh, it's telling them that they're below us. And this is a really powerful message that we unintentionally and maybe sometimes intentionally uh, give to young people is that they're below. And the thing is, as soon as you think you're below someone, that means someone else is below you because you automatically see the world and we see humans as some people are more worthy and some people are less worthy. Some people are better. Some people are worse. Some people are more worthy of you know, respect and kindness. And some people are definitely less worthy of it. And that whole less worthy, more worthy hierarchy, I call it the hierarchy of human worth. And uh, we teach kids that from the very beginning. And then, you know, they, they, they feel it about themselves and they interact with others like it throughout their lives until they hopefully, for some of us, we find our way out of that. But, you know, that's, that's not a guarantee. It's certainly been very challenging for me myself in my own journey to let go of that idea or to move beyond that idea of the hierarchy of human worth. And I still get stuck in it. You know, I still find myself thinking uh, all sorts of self-condemning thoughts of, and seeing myself in a poor light and then turning it around and seeing other people that way. <sighs> it just doesn't, it doesn't feel good and doesn't, you know, create the kind of relationships that I want. I want to give one when my kid was, my kid's going to be like 24 very, very soon, a month from now, actually. And, uh, and when I think of that, you know, I, I saw when I saw her and she was just like a little thing, I knew I wanted her to feel respected for her personhood, just as she was. Not that she needed to jump through hoops to get my respect, because I didn't want her to be making other people feel that way as well. I wanted her to feel that sense of unconditional respect for herself, unconditional worth. And uh, a lot of people think that that's going to lead to entitlement, but I have found that entitlement is actually a reaction to not feeling your worth and trying to force other people and push other people in order to compensate for our feeling lack of worth. And so 
when kids actually feel their worth inherently, they're much less likely to manipulate others to try and compensate for that. Interestingly, you mentioned the topic of entitlement and that just, you know, it really like gets me excited because hmm. I, I have this strong feeling around entitlement as it's a learned and taught behavior. And mm. it's another thing that we're teaching through mainstream parenting and the way that we as a society and a whole in general relate with children, um, you know, we give these ideas of entitlement to children through acting entitled ourselves. We think that we're entitled to the best of everything. That's, you know, the best chair in the house is mine, or, you know, I get the best of all of the food or, you know, um, I pay for everything around here. So my house, my rules, um, you know, all of these different really harmful ideas that we're putting out there that are really rather entitled. Now, I'm not saying that if you have a specific, like, this is my chair because I feel really comfortable here and I need it for my back and it's my chair. But there's a lot of reasons why we could be like, you know, this is my chair and this is your chair without sharing the entitlement with it where you know my house i pay for everything so this is my chair that's rather an entitled point of view to take in an infrastructure where you know these small people don't have the power to pay the bills and you know they just have to take the second best of everything so they're just working to up the power structure so that they can take the best of everything and that is how we teach entitlement through mainstream parenting. And it's incredibly problematic because it's all set up on this power structure. And, you know, backtalk is another topic where it's all like set into a power hierarchy. We're perpetuating these power hierarchies. What we're teaching our children very directly is that when they move up in the power structure, when they have the physical power, when they have the financial power, when, you know, um, things start to shift in their direction, they'll be able to control and oppress and take care of, you know, all of these situations through their own power. And we're not teaching them true relational tools for how to navigate situations in ways that are fair and ways that feel really in alignment with their values that feel you know, um, solutions to problems that don't end in control, threats, and manipulation. Yeah, very much so. Uh, I see a lot of things that parents worry about, and they feel like they need to force onto their kids, you know, manners, respect, being kind, empathy, things that people want to teach their kids, but they feel like if they don't force their kids into they're never going to learn. Whereas if we let go and relax and model those things and respect our kids and use empathy with them, respect their boundaries, that's how they learn. They don't learn from being manipulated into being the way we want them to be. They learn from seeing it, from feeling it. I feel like, yeah, that was something that it took me a while to understand, but something I have really learned. And the deeper I go into gentle parenting, the more I really feel those, those things are true. And I see them reflected in my kids too, you know? Yeah. Like when you, uh, the, 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 the power of modeling, right. The power of 
kids learning from what they see and the environment that they are steeped in really. And, uh, and, you know, you talk in your book, you talk about um, staying calm and how, how we can stay calm when we, cause I, I my, my uh, we're talking about backtalk, right. And one of the things about backtalk is it gets us really upset and feel this, we feel disrespectful and it touches on times in our past when we've been disrespected. And so then we're like, defending from our defending like patterns from our past defending our inner child defending our times in our adult self when we may have been disrespected and and our kids talk to us that way it can trigger something in us and then we want to stay calm through it so that we're not lashing out at them i always say that you know our feelings in those moments are valid but we don't want to project them onto our kids because it's not their fault and it's not their responsibility to take care of our feelings in that way we're uh, we're the guide here and so and even, you know, even in my adult relationships, if I, if I get upset, I don't want to project it onto the other person. I would like to behave in a way that's respectful um, with them too and, and caring and collaborative. And so, uh, you know, when we, uh, when we engage in a practice of learning to stay calm, even when we're upset like that, um, it can really help us. Can you share some of the ideas about staying calm that you, that you offer in your book? Uh, staying calm is something I actually asked you, uh, all three of you at different points during lives and uh, becoming gentle about how to stay calm because it was something <laughs> I was struggling with. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but also I had seen a lot of people in the group asking like, you know, I am so stressed about my kids reaction. How do I stay calm? So, and all of you answered in different ways, but the same idea that staying calm is a practice mm. and it's something you practice not when things are stressful. It's something you have to practice before mm. and then you can use those skills inside stressful moments. So uh, adding a meditation, Practice, mindfulness practice has been super important to my parenting and keeping myself calm and definitely yeah, something I... What is your mindfulness practice, Melody? Um, it varies. Sometimes I do a guided meditation. Sometimes I just uh, listen to some white noise and breathe. I, I really love the book by... Camel Ravikant, uh, he wrote a book called Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It, because it does. <laughs> it is such a great book. And he, um, he uh, had a multi-million dollar business in uh, Silicon Valley, and it all went kaput overnight. And he got super sick, and he was you know, almost, almost uh, going to die. And one night he was just like, I'm going to love myself. And he started a meditation where he would breathe. In, I love myself and just repeat that over and over until he did. <laughs> and I, I found that one to be actually super transformational to my life. Fake it until you make it, right? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, you, you you do not feel it at first, but eventually it comes around where you love yourself and you can, it, it really just changes everything about yourself when you can love yourself. You know, and what, sorry, go ahead. Self-love is such an abstract concept because we don't really tell people how to do it, but we have systematically with mainstream parenting, teaching people how to not love themselves. 
And one thing I'd like to throw out there is a couple tools for folks who want to like begin that journey of self-love and getting to know and love yourself. The really big thing is that we have been taught our entire lives to ignore through mainstream parenting. And most of us as a majority have been taught to ignore our feelings, push them aside, keep going, please the people, do what you're supposed to do. Um, you know, when we're making decisions, we're often basing it on how many people we can please and who we're making happy and who we're mm. not making happy and how we can balance everything with the least contention, right? So if we can just start small because it's really hard <laughs> in the beginning to just listen to yourself. And when you make decisions in life, make them based on what feels most true to you, most in alignment with your own values, most in alignment with your own feelings, most in alignment with who you are. And start small, make small decisions that feel most in alignment with you. And little by little, that'll start to feel more comfortable. And pretty soon one day you'll wake up and you'll go, wow. <laughs> I feel like a different person and that self-love is really self-knowledge and doing the things you want to do them, not because somebody else told you to do them, but because they're in alignment with who you are. And that's really where I see the most self-love awesome from. Yeah. We often get the message from mainstream parenting to not uh, make ourselves happy. We have to make everyone around us happy. And it's so important and it's okay to make yourself happy, you know, not not at the expense of hurting others, but just, you know, do things like you said that are in alignment with with yourself. And if you can truly be in alignment with yourself, you can be gentle with other people too. Yeah, you know, I've told the story a couple of times because uh, it really had an impact on me when when it happened. Um, but we interviewed, Sujai and I interviewed my kid, Vietz, for a podcast a couple of times, and she's actually going to be on again in the near future. So keep your eye out for that. And she's, you know, quite an amazing being because, uh, well, because she is who she is. And, uh, and we've always encouraged her to, for her to be who she is, you know, to really be herself, to honor herself, to listen to herself. And this is a 24-year-old that's never been punished, never been given a consequence, uh, almost never even been told no, and uh, and certainly never, um, you know, we we didn't we did, we worked not to yell, we didn't make decisions for her, all that stuff, all that good juicy stuff that seems so off the wall for uh, main, the mainstream mindset. And but fortunately, somehow I don't know how. Fortunately, we had that insight, that awareness, uh, twenty four years ago, that that's how we were going to do things. And so in our, uh, in our podcast, at one point, we had a question because we solicited questions from, the, from our uh, membership group. And we uh, had a question from one of our members that said, what is your life goal? And she said, my life goal is to be happy. And Sujai said to her, you know, some people might hear that as a selfish goal. And I'm just wondering how you would respond to those people. And she said, you know, Sujai, what I've learned throughout my life is that one of the best ways for me to be happy is to make other people happy. And it's a completely selfish thing because I get a boost out of it, but that's how I try and live my life. And so it actually ends up being a win-win thing for the people I interact with and for myself. 
And uh, I certainly never said, you know, you should try and make other people happy because that's the way to live. I never talked to her that way. Um, often the opposite, I would say, make sure that what you're doing is what you want to do and, uh, and that you're honoring yourself. Um, but this is how, this is what she discovered through her own process, through her own true, truly deeply honoring herself. She discovered that one of the things that makes her feel the best about herself is when she contributes to other people's well-being. And uh, it's just something that's so uh, natural in her. And I think, I think that that tendency to care about each other's well-being is natural in us. And we can spend our time as parents, you know, fostering it and nourishing it, certainly by the modeling, uh, because then we're bringing it out in an organic way. And you can't, it's like caring, about, it's, caring about someone else is not something we can force. It's certainly not something you can punish into somebody. You can't complain to somebody enough to make them care about other people. I mean, these just aren't things that make, inspire us to care about each other. It's they're not. What inspires us to care about each other is to feel cared for. What inspires us to care about each other is to have deep human connection and to feel that sameness, you know, uh, to feel that empathy, that connection, um, that human connection. And that's where real care, that's where real respect uh, comes from. And, uh, and, you know, like, so then when kids, when kids do what kids do, because kids do all sorts of things, um, like the backtalk, for example, or not cleaning their room or whatever they do, and we approach them from a position of, you know, being the authority and telling them what to do and telling them they're wrong and whatever, we are giving them the opposite experience. We're not giving them, them the experience of human connection feeling really good and something that they want to tune into and really care about. And, and so then, you know, the natural instinct to want to care about other people's experience, uh, it doesn't have a chance to flourish because it's actually not safe to do that. Um, it becomes dangerous to do that. We kids put up a barrier and they put up an armor if you are, you know, punishing your kid right now, giving them consequences, and you can see that armor if you look for it. You can see that they're, they're pulling away, that they will hide themselves from you. They don't, want to, they don't want to tell you when they make a mistake because they're not sure what the reaction is going to be. And we really want to make it safe for our kids to make mistakes freely so that we can be their guide and, and help, them, help them grow through it, you know. Absolutely, you know. Um. I always say mistakes in air quotes because life is about learning, right? And right. when things are less than perfect, that's really when we learn, get the opportunity to learn how to navigate the hard stuff, how to implement the relational skills, how to do accountability and how to heal and how to, you know, um, problem solve and, get through a situation and we learn, you know, our own processes for grieving, our own processes for healing, our own processes for interrelational skills and problem solving and putting things right. And all of these wonderful things arise when life is less than perfect. And instead of seeing everything as like a mistake and the end of the world, we really can make a shift around it and see it as an opportunity to really learn and implement all of this stuff that we talk about. I find that gentle parenting is so good for giving us space to learn all those things and to heal our, our hurts that we had from the way we were parented. It's a way to 
to not only give those skills to our kids, but we can really learn them ourselves through practicing them with our kids. And I find gentle parenting to be so healing for all those things. Definitely change I relate to the world, <laughs> not just to my kids. I was just rereading the Valentine's Day message that I wrote to my daughter this year. And in it, I said that I fiercely protected her being herself. And in protecting her being herself, I found myself. And uh, that's, uh, I think, a, a little bit more poetic way to say what you were saying, that by, uh, by, by, finding, by allowing myself to find myself, to, to be who I, I am rather than who I was expected to be, um, I helped her do the same. And we really grew up together. I always say we grew up together. And because I felt like I grew up a second time, uh, or maybe for the first time, by being, by being a parent. Very much so. I think I definitely grew up with my youngest, and my second provided a new set of challenges for me. My kids are mm. apart, so it was almost like starting over in some ways. Uh-huh. What led there, you to gentle parenting, Melody? What was your What was your path like? Um, my second child came out, um, I don't want to say mad at the world, but with a lot of opinions about how the world should be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my first child was very, you know, calm and follow the rules. And if you just looked at her wrong, she was like, oh, okay, I'm going to follow what you say. Mm-hmm. But she was also an only child. So, you know, it was different. My second, he was about, I'm going to say about 18 months old, and he was rolling around on the floor, absolutely screaming. And I'm just like, I don't know how to help you. Mm. And my family told me, ignore it. You don't want to feed bad behavior. And I'm like, that's Mm. not right. My kid is obviously struggling. Went to the internet and started searching how to help tantrums. And I came across Dr. Laura Markham. Mm. And that led me down to other places. And eventually I found Gentle Parents Unite and... Sujai noticed me. You've been a member of Gentle Parents Unite for like close to five years now, huh? Has it been five? <laughs> Not terribly sure, but it feels like a really long time to me. <laughs> it could be get close to four, coming on four years. I'm going to have to look that up. <laughs> I know I joined the relationship group as an admin first. And I kind of ended up taking over that space until I couldn't handle the emotional toll. (laughs) Adult relationships require a lot more emotional labor. Yeah, those adult relational dynamics can be um, quite difficult to support people with because there's so many layers to everything. And so... And when there's more than one adult involved, then it becomes difficult because you can't control the other person i mean we can't control our kids either but you know i find that children um i think partially due partially due to the relationships that we have with our children and partially due to the power dynamics that we have in the parent-child relationship our children are more than willing and excited 
to engage in the relational processes with us and learn the relational processes with us, where oftentimes we find ourselves choking up against adults who have absolutely no interest in the self-growth and the self-healing and all of that stuff. And um, so engaging in healing processes with other adults can be quite difficult depending on the willingness of the other adult to engage in the healing process or whether they're still kind of stuck in some of the hurt and the pain and the um the more authoritarian mindset where you know um even in our and this is really a problem with the way that we're currently in mainstream raising children is that when people get to places where people aren't cooperating with them, they fall back on control and manipulation and all of these unhealthy relational tools because that's what they know. That's how they were raised. And that's what they were taught through their parents doing that to them. And now, like I was saying earlier on this podcast, now they're in the position to use the, the power, the control and the manipulation. And that can create for some really unhealthy adult relational dynamics and you know at 45 I'm in my first like truly healthy adult romantic relationship and I find I'm discovering that even after you know all of these years of work and everything um I still have a lot of like triggers and almost I don't want to say toxic but really difficult um really difficult things that may have been in other situations kind of self-defense tools (laughs) that aren't very um useful in relationships and relational tools and stuff like that that even now to this day I'm working on letting go of some of my own unhealthy relational that that would be the proper way to put it I think my own unhealthy relational tools that I would fall back on. So, you know, we, we all have those really deeply seated into who we are because of the way that society is interacting with children at this point. Yeah. You know, one of my uh, one-liners is update your survival mechanisms, mm-hmm. uh, right? Because yes. yes, they're as adults, they're unhealthy. Um, but as kids, that's how we survived. It's how we maintained a, an emotional and physical, personal survival from growing up in a coercive system and having to manage a system of punishments and rewards and conditional acceptance. And and like you, you Sujai, you often talk about how uh, you know part of that, uh, part of kids engaging in those survival mechanisms is because we are pack animals and that if you know as we were growing as we were evolving if somebody was excluded from the pack or kicked out from the pack or from the community their survival was uh, was at stake they very likely would die and so kids have this sense that they need connection for their very survival from us and it's actually true really in a way and uh, and we've learned so much about how much that connection and attachment matters in the early years and so then when we develop these survival mechanisms and then we're putting them in play when we're adults with other adults and with our kids, um, they're just, they're not effective because they weren't, they weren't, we weren't really taught how to manage ourselves and how to, how to work effectively, uh, engage in effective relationships and really relational communication tools. 
and uh, and so yeah yeah so like as adults especially uh, you know as um, people wanting to be conscious and live according to values and change the way we're parenting we it's really useful for us it's to, helpful for us to look at our survival mechanisms and uh, and work towards changing them so that they're more uh, in alignment and that's a big part of the um, I think the work that we do it really is and part of um Updating our uh, survival mechanisms is uh, learning emotional literacy. I think a lot of us miss that information and it's so important to because our kids have a lot of emotions and are willing to express them very readily. So it's really right. a, <laughs> really a uh, learning opportunity for us to pay with our own, own emotions and uh, I read in the book uh, Self Rig by Stuart Shanker. He talks a lot about how our brains are meant to mirror the emotions of people around us. So that's why mm. our kids' upset feels so intense for us. And we want to run away from it because we were punished for having emotions. But it's really important to learn how to sit with your big feelings. And that's something I still have to work on. I am an emotional stuffer. Right. Are you? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which is another, I mean, and when we dig into this work, like so much of everything that we talk about is societal and cultural, but you know, we don't even, we're so busy talking about how emotions are for women and emotions make you imbalanced and all this that we don't even really recognize what an emotion is emotion is a signal to our nervous system letting us know you know and and a lot of this stuff it's so primal it's, it's basic basic mm -hmm. primal instincts and we get these signals that let us know whether we're in a safe environment or an unsafe environment whether we're comfortable with something or uncomfortable with something so that we can keep ourselves safe in any situation and mm -hmm. Notice that we have an uncomfortable emotion, something that makes us mad. That's our nervous system sending our body, sending our brain a signal that we need to make a shift. And when we have that basic knowledge that our nervous system is trying to tell us something and we try to listen to what our nervous system might be telling us, why something is causing us discomfort, then we can do something about it and make a shift. But if we ignore that and we go, oh, that feeling makes me weak, that feeling makes me sad, that feeling makes me this, then the feeling, the nervous system, that signal gets louder and louder and louder, letting you know that you're not exactly in a situation that's completely safe and comfortable for you. And at some point when we're, you know, getting these signals to our nervous system and we try to ignore it and push it away mm -hmm. and not address it, face it, look at it, make sure what you have to do to make yourself more comfortable, then you're kind of running down a road straight towards like having this thing like blow out of you in explosive ways when you become angry and have a hard time controlling your emotions because at this point, <clears throat> your nervous system is literally yelling at you that something in your environment is not quite right. 
Yeah, we are not very adept at checking in with our emotions and noticing how they build up. People often say, you know, I they just we I just exploded out of nowhere when it's really a buildup over the day. And this is what I had to learn in anxiety recovery to check in with myself and notice when I'm getting tense, notice where my, um, what my thoughts are. My thoughts are racing. If I'm speaking negatively to myself, Mm. I need to step back and reset. We never just explode out of nowhere. Right. It makes me think of my, uh, my watermelon analogy. There are these videos on YouTube where <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Gabriel has seen these videos. He was just telling me I know where this is going. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. There are these videos on YouTube with people who take uh, elastic bands, take a watermelon and they wrap elastic bands around. And a watermelon is big and strong, right? So you put one or two elastic bands, nothing happens. But you, they keep putting the elastic bands over and over more and more until there's like 100, 200, 300 elastic bands. And then you put one last one on and the whole watermelon explodes from the pressure. And, uh, and of course, if you were unaware of, ignoring or unaware of all the, the previous 399 elastic bands, it would seem like it's just this one elastic band, irrational, huge expo- explosion out of nowhere, right? But uh, if we're aware of that, because we have mental, emotional, relational, environmental developmental elastic bands coming around and coming to us all the time. And so if we're aware of those elastic bands as we, um, as we go through the day, as you said, you know, it can make a big difference. And when I, I did a workshop not too long ago with uh, youth mental health expert, Hannah Laird, and we talk about these elastic bands and how having awareness of your kids' elastic bands and watching for them and helping them ease the pressure of those elastic bands has a huge impact on kids' uh, emotional wellness. And certainly we can do the same for ourselves as being more aware of those, um, be, more, be more aware of those elastic bands. And I think one of the things that I think helps kids uh, the most with their uh, elastic bands is uh, an experience of feeling connected to their parents and actively working on connection with our kids. And this is another thing you talk about a lot in your book, uh, Melody, is you say kids don't need boundaries, they need connection. Kids don't need boundaries, they need relationship. And I really appreciate that message. It's certainly one that I've been trumpeting for uh, you know a couple of decades myself. And, <laughs> um, and uh, I wonder if you can share a, a little bit about that idea of how connection works and how it impacts uh, our relationship with our kids. Connection? I, I really try to define connection, and it's one of those things that's difficult to define. You know, it's, sure. it's the relationship we have, relationships we have, but it's, uh, it's more than just a relationship because you can have a relationship with a lot of people and not be connected to them. Empathy and and play are really the two important parts. And this is in any relationship, you know, our relationships Mm. with our partners, with our parents, with, with anyone, with our friends, we need to have an emotional connection where we're supporting each other's emotions, hearing, hearing where they come from and, and play, I think is just such an important thing for, for, especially for kids, because that's how they, learn in the world is through play. And I think those two things build connection 
Empathy and play. I love that. I love the, <laughs> the combination. It's so great. And the other thing that I find very important is also um, problem solving with our kids, not just mm. telling them how it is, but, you know, when we talk about backtalk, you know, it's kids having their opinion and instead of saying, slamming your fist down on the table and this is the way it is, I'm in charge. You know, we listen to their side and think about what they what they might be needing that we're, we're not meeting their needs. We often, uh, I think I said this in the book, um, we kind of think that kids are waiting around for us to give them direction. (laughs) (laughs) I think is how people sometimes relate to their kids. They're just, you know, their kids just waiting there like a lump for us to Mm. mold and send off to do things for us where kids have their own agendas. They have their own things that are important to them and we need to listen to them and work together. Yeah, and respect their uh, their agendas, priorities, preferences, values, uh, equally valid as our own. You know, the the adult uh, the adult perspective isn't. I call it adult supremacy. The adult the adult perspective isn't <laughs> automatically. Term. Thank you. Isn't <laughs> automatically uh, the default one. You know, it's like one of my one of my other sayings. Of course, I have a lot of sayings, as you know. And <laughs> one of my other sayings is: uh, Is it the is it the children making noise in the restaurant that are disturbing the adults or is it the adults being quiet in the restaurant that are disturbing the children (laughs) (laughs) yes a lot of folk might argue that the adults are entitled to the space because they're paying the money and i would Uh, disagree because children don't even have the ability to pay the money to make the money and um they should be equally entitled to the space as adults. Absolutely. Respect very much two-way street. And when we define respect, it's a deep admiration. You know, Mm. we when we truly respect, we look at that thing with a deep love and admiration and we have um, you know, we, we want to hear their advice. We want to know what they have to say, what their opinions are. And we want to lean into that relationship and please that person. And respect truly is never held with a heavy hand. Yeah. That's not respect. That's fear. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of parents will... When their kid says no, they will double down and end up in a, a power struggle. Oh, want yes. to. power struggles. And <laughs> you know, it seems like almost everybody has this one, at least one thing that they're willing to throw down and power struggle with their child over every <laughs> single day, whether it's food or bedtime or whatever that thing is they're willing to throw down every single day and you know like I'm a gentle parent all day long and then it comes time to brush the teeth and I'm pinning the kid down and cramming the toothbrush out of their mouth and you're like um (laughs) (laughs) might be a little bit to explore here when 
you know, we think that our values are the end all be all and we're willing to physically engage in battle. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone does have that thing. (laughs) (laughs) Growing up in my household, um, for my mom, it was sugar and screen Mm. time. Those were Mm. her two big throwdowns. We were not allowed screen time at all. And we were not allowed sugar at all to the point like we didn't even get cake at the birthday party. (laughs) Mm. Oh, man. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I have five siblings (laughs) they all have multiple tvs and all of them eat sugar and so her forced values didn't really carry over in the way that she would have really hoped that they would have and i know that her intentions were coming from the best of places and you know i know that my mom really wanted to instill these values in us that it was really important to her that we didn't get too much or any at all <laughs> and too much sugar or any at all <laughs> <laughs> these things were really important to, to her but it didn't teach us much about nutrition it didn't teach us much about regulating our own screen time or you know um interestingly when I got old enough to like have control over my own body I, I had a big maybe maybe a six to eight year struggle with sugar i mean there was 100 candy bars i've never tried (laughs) (laughs) makes me want chocolate (laughs) (laughs) i know (laughs) and now i'm much more balanced with sugar it's kind of part of my balanced nutritional diet you know i don't eat a ton of sugar um consume the most in my coffee But, you know, it's it's more balanced in my diet. But I had to go through myself a very long struggle with balancing sugar and the way that it made me feel. And, you know, um, I went full bore allowing it into my diet as opposed to having it being part of a balanced diet. Makes sense. Yeah, that's the dark side of control. The dark side of control. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it is we are trying to hold on to will slip through your fingers. Mm. Yeah, That sounds like a good title for a a movie, The Dark Side (laughs) of Control. (laughs) Be my next book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like it. (laughs) Right after kids don't need boundaries. That that title would work on on both of your genres, uh, uh, Melody. (laughs) That's <laughs> very true. <laughs> uh, goodness me. Yeah, I love it. I love it. That's great. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then when we yes. control those things, then we have kids who um, they lie to us, they hide candy from us, they tell us they're going here, but they're really going there. They tell us they're doing this, but they're really doing that. How often do I hear that? I just had a parent reach out to me, my 14-year-old is never coming home on time, and they tell me they're going to this friend's house, but they're really going over there, and all this stuff. And in the middle of it, I also hear about how they're making their kid making their kid do chores, and consequences when they don't do the chores, and um, when they find out that they lied to them, they tell them, oh, I'm disappointed uh, in you for lying, and all these different things that, you know, with any any relationship, really, if we treated people that way, they would want to hide from us. You know? And I think the main areas of the importance of connection, real trust for me. And I want, want to be my kid's most trusted 
place. You know, I want my kid to know that they can come to me with anything that I'm safe for them. Telling them is not enough because they have, you know, we tell kids that they're safe, but then we act in unsafe ways. That's not, that's not going to drive the point home because safety is not something that's only intellectual. It's not words. It's the feeling we have. It's the, or the repeated experiences that we have. It's the patterns in our nervous system and in our neural pathways that get formed by those repeated experiences. And the more of those we get, the more uh, un untrustable experiences we get, the more unsafe experiences we get, the more our nervous system re responds to that. You know, I know that when, uh, when certain people come in the room, like if I'm with, if I'm with people that I, I know, when certain people come in the room, if depending on my experiences, I either tense up and then certain other people I relax, you know, it depends on even just coming in the room where they haven't done anything, said anything, but I'm like, Oh, my nervous system's like, Oh, I know what to expect from this person. Here and, we go uh, again. There we go again. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, when we're, I often think of parenting, forgive the extremely left-brained, um, somewhat disconnected sounding analogy, but I often think of parenting as nervous system programming. And, uh, and every interaction that I have with my kid is programming their nervous system for who, informing them about who they are, informing them about who I am, informing them about what human relationships are about. And, uh, and, um, and so if I'm conscious of that, if I'm conscious of like, how is this particular moment impacting the nervous system? How is it impacting their memories? Because I also talk about us being memory makers. How is it impacting, like you said, our relationship? Uh, constantly thinking about that and, and running the, my decisions through that filter uh, really helps me to make decisions. Because a lot of the time when our kids are in front of us we're and they're doing things, we're like, I just don't know how to respond. So if we have some kind of a sense of principles, and, uh, and a structure to think of it through, then it really helps us. At least it helps us know what not to do. We don't, even if we don't always know what to do, I call it the don't do and the do do. And, and so <laughs> <laughs> if we don't, sometimes, sometimes the, it's more important in the moment to know what the don't do is than the do do. And then we can learn the do do as time comes along. Um, because the don't do is actively adding damage a lot of the time. And if we can at least, at least bite our tongue and avoid that, and I often say I only have 7% of my tongue left. If we, <laughs> we, if, we, if we can at least bite our tongue and avoid the don't do's, um, we get so much farther ahead. Then we leave an open space. We create that more trust um, where we're able to explore the do-do more with our kids. And we can learn that uh, as time goes on. Because what they really care about, they don't care about us being perfect. What's that? Explore the doo-doo. Explore the doo-doo. That's the name of my book. Uh, I should write an, I should at least have a chapter in my book called Explore the Doo-Doo. That's right. It has to be now. Yep. Oh, oh goodness me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do enjoy a, a humorous turn of phrase. I have to say it makes me, it makes me laugh. I figure as long as I'm, I'm writing stuff, I might as well make it make me laugh at the very least, you know? It should. Oh, laughter is a good way to learn and to connect, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to bring it back around. I laugh every single time you say doo-doo. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I know you do. I love it. We're all just 12-year-olds inside. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My inner child still needs to laugh about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Laughter is one of the best tension releasing activities you can engage in. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And the, you know, the further along we get in this path, the more 
challenging it can be because we see the the degree of d and reprogramming that that we want to do and so that laughter really helps you know it laughter lightens as as they say and and it really helps us because it's it's can be really heavy work uh looking at ourselves and being honest you know self-deception is one of the most uh you know attractive things and for us to be able to be really honest with ourselves and to not deceive ourselves uh, it requires uh, it re- yeah it requires some persistence it requires courage um, self-compassion makes it easier for us to, to be honest with ourselves because then we're not punishing ourselves at the same time because uh, when we look honestly at ourselves and look at what what we want to uh, to shift and change and then we think we're bad because of it then it's problematic you know we i often see a lot of posts on on facebook and instagram saying you don't have to change anything to be perfect just as you are to be acceptable just as you are and i agree with that 100% because that's what the self compassion is about it's like i'm i'm not a bad person and i'm not unworthy because i'm not perfect for goodness sakes and at the same time it doesn't mean that we don't change the opposite of that of course is that we also want to be engaged in learning and growing and being more in alignment with our our principles our priorities and our values favorite one liners is of mine is all my favorite one liners are mine of course but one of my favorite one liners <laughs> of mine is i love you exactly as you are always change. <laughs> mhm. Yes. Yes, you can't uh, beat yourself into being gentle and changing though. You can't <laughs> change yourself into it. <laughs> right, right, right. Thanks to Jane I had a conversation about that earlier in the week on one of the live calls. Mm. <laughs> I often see people like beating themselves up like mm. why can't I change? Why can't I be gentle and mm. You're never going to be gentle with your kids if you're telling yourself you're a bad person. <laughs> right. And it's such a self-perpetuating cycle. Like once you're telling yourself we're our own harshest judge. And once you're telling yourself that you're broken, that you're never going to get this right, that you just can't do it, that you're just an awful, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad person, <laughs> then you're, and it's going to be that much harder to engage with this thing in like healthy, positive ways. And so now you're like stuck in this rut where you're just acting out of alignment with how you want to be doing things and beating yourself up for it and really unable to pull yourself up out of it because, you know, the mindset around it is so self-deprecating and, you know, just taking a little bit of compassion in that moment and knowing, hey, I... I really want to make changes in this world. I really want to make shifts in the way that I relate with my children and the way that I relate with everybody, the way that I relate in life and hold myself mm. accountable for who I am and be this person that I really want to be and mm. these are my values and you know and I am really like working hard to make these shifts and sometimes I fall short of my goal and that's totally okay you know I'm gonna dust myself off and pick myself up and love myself right now for who I am and you know all of these things because when we see something you know we notice a cycle something that we're engaging in that's 50% of the battle <laughs> so instead of beating yourself up about it go woohoo I got another like piece of a direction of how I can help myself do better in these situations because now I know something about myself and I can really use that as a tool to help myself better and improve. 
see it as an opportunity instead of the end of the world because we've fallen short of some mark that we set for ourselves. And a lot of the marks that we set for ourselves are high and unrealistic. Yes. Change comes in very small, small pieces. <laughs> but all, but Fortunately, yes. Small change can also, it, it all builds other to be a larger change. If you read into the power of 1% and uh, it became popularized after a coach helped the Brit a British cycling team make tiny, tiny changes to how they did things and they ended up becoming a championship team after hundreds of years of losing. <laughs> that's, that's the power of 1%. So don't underestimate the power of small changes. That's amazing. I hadn't heard that story. That's wonderful. I'm often telling people that, you know, big change comes with a lot of privilege. <laughs> mm. And what we can manage in reality, everyday life for a majority of people is very teeny tiny little shifts in our everyday mm. life. Mm. That's why I teach our members. And by the way, when I say our members, I just like to, to give a little plug here. Um, Sujai and I host a membership, a parenting membership space called Becoming Gentle. And you can find us at um, www.gentleparentsunite.com slash membership. And in our, in our membership group, we do a lot of live events. We have live coaching calls and meditations. Today, there's going to be a meditation, oh my gosh, in half an hour. And we do, uh, and, I, and I go live and I do a live class every week. Uh, where I go into depth about different subjects and it's a really great space. And one of the things that I teach in that space are my three micro practices is the micro meditation, the micro self-compassion and the micro self-observation. And the reason I teach these micros because they each of these last for one breath. That's the idea. So a micro meditation is a one breath meditation. A micro self-compassion is a one sentence self-compassion moment rather than a whole big, I also have an hour long meditation on self-compassion but, uh, but a micro self-compassion is just one sentence that you practice saying to yourself throughout the day whenever you notice yourself coming down on yourself or something. You just give yourself a moment of love. And uh, micro meditation, you focus on your breath for just one breath when you're in the middle of doing things or in the middle of your day. You do that a few times throughout the day. And micro self-observation is where you observe yourself from sort of an external objective standpoint where you can notice yourself. It's like right now I'm sitting on my couch as, I, as we're recording this. And, uh, and I'm talking into the microphone and now I'm watching myself as I'm on the couch and I can actually see my hands and moving in the air and because I move my hands a lot when I talk. And again, I'm watching myself now from sort of a, an external thing I'm observing. Um, and so we, we have this ability to be able to observe ourselves and also be doing the thing. And so doing that in just little moments throughout the day, it helps us build that capacity. And the reason I do those micros is like you said, Sujai, there's a lot of, a lot of people don't have a lot of time. They don't have a lot of energy. It's really hard to sit and focus for a long time, but to be able to focus for one breath is accessible to most people. And so, uh, you know, being able to take those small steps and do micro practices is, uh, it's really powerful. I love all of those. Those are amazing. Small steps are the way to start. Mm -hmm. If you wait to have half an hour quiet to meditate, you will never, ever get it if you have children. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
And it's okay to meditate while your kids are crawling on you. It's okay to pause your meditation and answer your kids or mm. deal with a meltdown. Mm-hmm. The practice of meditation is coming back to the calm space. It took me 20 some years to learn how to meditate. <laughs> mm. I spent a lot of time thinking I was doing it wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. You cannot do it wrong. You cannot do it wrong. You cannot do it wrong and you are not broken. And anytime that you're out of alignment with your values and you feel like you're falling short and making mistakes, see it as a learning opportunity and learn how to really put these relational skills and communication skills and the healing and all of that into practice. And, you know, there's when times are easy, it's easy to be gentle and kind and soft and everything. You know, it takes a lot more self-discipline and a lot more work to be all these things that we hope to be in the moment, you know? Yes. And if you need help, there are no two better people than these two to guide you on your journey. Everything in my book was things I learned from you and you two and Margie. Of course, (laughs) who is working behind the scenes with me. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah, that's so amazing that uh, Margie Zentz is helping Melody to um, get her get her book um, with an audio recording. And Margie has got the best voice for reading that. I love Margie's voice. For sure, it's amazing. It's yeah, so soothing. And it's like know, taking a little vacation every chapter I listen to. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love that. Indeed. And, you know, I, I want to say for our listeners that if you're thinking about joining our support service and you just think that, you know, you never have time away from your kids and there's just no time for that. And, you know, children are welcome on all of our calls. We love getting to know your kids. They're um, if or having needs or anything we hold tons of space you know um, you don't have to being a gentle parent is hard enough work and being part of our space add more work to your plate or trying to you know create room for babysitters or other things or you know it's really there to help you and support you in your real life situation which definitely often includes having kids present and we're totally really welcoming of everybody to come on over there and um you know take advantage of the support that's available and it's a sliding scale space we um membership starts as low as 15 dollars a month and we just ask people to pay for the space what they can afford and um all of the benefits of being part of that membership space and the services are available to all members. And so we look forward to seeing you over there. Yeah, it's, it's a very beautiful space you have created for everyone. Welcoming, supportive, empathy, connection, all of those important things to help parents and you don't have to have time away from your kids, which can be a barrier for many to going to therapy or things like that. Mm, that's true. That's true. 
Yeah. Melanie, my friend, it's been so wonderful having you on the podcast with us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor to speak with you. For sure. For sure. I learn so much from you all the time and I really enjoy our, uh, our uh, professional engagement and our friendship as well. The feeling is very mutual. I could have written the book or admin the group without your guidance. Wonderful. Can you tell people uh, again the name of your book and where you can find it? The book is called Relationship First Parenting, How to Improve Cooperation and Build a Lifetime Connection. And you can find it on most major retailers. My website is gentlevillage.wordpress.com. Or you can find me in Gentle Parents Unite and just uh, poke me there. <laughs> I'm always willing to answer questions, help you out, private coaching. That's wonderful. Melody, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I would really recommend everyone go out and get your book. I've read it and it's absolutely amazing and it's so helpful for any parent who reads it. It's got philosophy, but also really practical tips that can help parents work with their kids and build deeper relationships with them and deeper harmony. Um, yeah, I just love it. And I'm so glad that you, uh, that you wrote it and shared so much of your wisdom. Um, and as Melody mentioned, we have a Facebook group. Our big Facebook group is Gentle Parents Tonight, and you can find us on, uh, on, by typing that into Facebook. We also uh, have the smaller group, which is Gentle Parents Unite Becoming Gentle. And we've talked about that a lot. And you can find us on gentleparentsunite.com slash membership. And we also have a public page on Facebook, which is Gentle Parents Unite. Also, this is the public page. And I myself have a lot of articles and videos that I've written on this topic. Uh, you can find my articles mostly on Meaningful Ideas on Facebook and also Instagram, where Alanis Morissette actually shared one of my parenting sayings a few months ago, which I was pretty starstruck about because Jagged Little Pill is like the only album I listened to for a few years. And, uh, and, we, and also I have my YouTube channel, which I just uploaded my 70th video on. So I have a whole lot of resources on my uh, YouTube video, my YouTube channel, which is also Meaningful Ideas. And, uh, and yeah, that's it, everybody. Uh, thank you so much. We appreciate having you on. Thank you so much for joining us, Melody. It has been such a pleasure to hear your voice and to share with you here. And um, like Vivek said, just so much admiration for you and the book and like all of the work you do. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate both of you. Wonderful. And we will see everybody next week.